So here's Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6 from the message translation. The Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, says to the church in Colossae, uh, we, that's why we call it Colossians, my counsel for you is simple and straightforward. Just go ahead with what you've been given. You've received Christ Jesus, the master. Now live him. You're deeply rooted in him. You're well constructed upon him. You know your way around the faith. Now just do what you're taught. School's out. Quit studying the subject and start living it. And let your living spill over into thanksgiving. The Apostle Paul knows this audience is full of baptized Christians who have confessed Jesus is Lord. That's an incendiary, huge thing to say in the first century. Because we said Caesar is Lord. This is a political claim. It's a truth claim with, with uh, definitely political and ultimately cosmic proportions. Jesus is Lord. Paul knows that these people he's writing to have said this. This is a 2,000-year-old letter from an apostle of Jesus to a church in the Roman city of Colossae. This was written to them, not to you. The Bible is written for you. It's not written to you. It's a cross-cultural, ancient library written by over 40 different authors over 1,500 years, but God has seen fit that this whole library we call the Bible tells the unified story of God's work in and through Jesus in the history of the world. So much so that Jesus is able to walk with two disciples after his resurrection. You can see this in Luke 24. And he opens up the Bible starting in Genesis. He says Moses, which means the first five books of the Bible. And working all the way through the end of the prophets, he shows them all the things concerning him. This whole thing is about me, he would say in another instance to the Pharisees. This Bible is for us, even if it wasn't initially written to us. But that dynamic means that we always have some translating and unpacking to do when we come to a biblical text. So when Paul says, now do what you've been taught, for example, he's talking to a people that he knows have already been taught. Paul assumes that these readers have been baptized and taught about life together in Christ Jesus, but that's maybe an open question for some of us. Working on the college campus, especially in you know, fields like this and right after a pandemic, it's a motley crew out here. I don't know actually what all of you have been taught, what you've learned, where you come from. I don't know what you profess if you've been baptized, what you think about baptism. I don't know. Have you made a decision to follow Jesus as Lord? Have you considered him who gave his life for you as opposed to all the other things you might be prone to follow as Lord in this world? A successful job, a romance, a certain kind of reputation, celebrity status. I don't know what you think wins and rules over all things, but Christians are those who look to Jesus and recognize in him that he is Lord and worthy to be Lord over all things. And in response to that, Jesus has commanded us to get baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Going underwater as a symbol of death to our old ways of life and coming up out of the water as a symbol of rising to a new way of life in Christ. And if you haven't received Jesus as Lord and been baptized, listen in to what he's like in sermons like this and what it's like to live life with him. And if you want to follow him or get baptized, come talk to me after this, okay? But for those of you who have received Jesus as Lord, you can see yourselves as a kind of people that Paul is addressing, like he's addressing the Colossians. Paul knows that this Colossian church has already received Jesus as Lord, and because he knows that they've made that decision, he tells them, live like it. If you've received Jesus as Lord, live like it. In a similar way, 
I married my wife just over 14 years ago. She married me too. It's a nice deal. Uh, and I, 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 um, I said before anyone, I always said before everyone there, that I would forsake anyone and everyone that competed with her in our marriage. It's a pretty standard in wedding vows. I think it ought to be there in most people's, in people's wedding vows. Like, I'm going to forsake all others for you. And if I have forgotten what marriage is about, or if I just start to think one day that I need something else other than what we vowed there on our wedding day, I probably just need someone to come up to me and say, hey, brother, you married your wife, now live like it. Like, all they need to do is hold me fast to those vows. Like, there wasn't anything when we said our wedding vows that my wife was like, I heard what you said. I'm assuming you're going to read a few more books about it. You know, I'm assuming you're going to take some classes or listen to podcasts. All those things might be fine. But, but what she believed and what I believed is that under, by the grace of God and in the community of our family and friends, see, all those things were present at our wedding and a part of what we thought was going on. That our marriage was a communal deal. It was a covenant between God and us and with our friends and families as witnesses and a part of this tribal thing. Our marriage isn't just for us, it's for the world too kind of thing. And we were standing there covenanting our lives to one another in light of all of this and we believed, still believe that if we just hold fast to these things, God is faithful and just to deliver on the promises of what he wants in our marriage together. We are married, all we need to do is live like it. This is basically what the way Paul is trying to encourage the Colossian church. Remember that you received Christ, right? So live like it. Rather than living in accordance to the ways of the world or the old dead religious ways that we thought brought us closer to God, like don't watch Harry Potter or something, live like Jesus is Lord and he's good on his promise. These two verses right here, that's all we've covered, those two verses, they, they really serve as the summary for everything else that's going to follow until the conclusion of Colossians, pretty much. There's some, like, uh, very stuff at the very end where he says hi to a bunch of folks, and we'll talk about that too some week. But, but through the main content of this letter, these two verses cover everything else he's unpacking. And so let's look at the rest together. The Apostle Paul begins to unpack what this looks like to live like it. Watch out for people who try to dazzle you with big words, and intellectual double talk. They want to drag you off in, this, in the endless arguments that never amount to anything. They spread their ideas to the empty traditions or of the empty traditions of human beings in the empty superstitions of, of spirit. Be, I, I think I um, seried this, into, so I don't know what it actually says. Um, that's not the way of Christ. Everything of God gets expressed in Jesus, in him. So you can see and hear him clearly. You can see God clearly. You don't need a telescope, a microscope, or a horoscope to realize the fullness of Christ and the emptiness of the universe without him or without them. When you come to him, that fullness comes together for you too, you know. His power, Jesus' power, extends over everything. Entering into this fullness is not something to figure out or achieve. It's not a matter of being circumcised or keeping a long list of laws. No, you're already in. Insiders. Not through some secretive initiation rite, but rather through what Christ has already gone through for you, destroying the power of sin. If it's an initiation ritual you're after, you've already been through it by submitting to baptism. Going into the water was a burial of your old life, and coming up out of it was a resurrection. God raising you from the dead as he did Christ. When you were stuck in your old sin-dead life, 
You were incapable of responding to God. But God brought you alive, right along with Christ. Think of it. All sins forgiven, the slate wiped clean, that old warrant canceled and nailed to Christ's cross. He stripped all the spiritual tyrants in the universe of their sham authority at the cross and marched them naked through the streets. So don't put up with anyone pressuring you in details of diet, worship services, or holy days. All those things are mere shadows cast before what was to come. The substance is Christ. And don't tolerate people who try to run your life, ordering you to bow and scrape, insisting that you join their obsession with angels and that you seek out visions. They're a lot of hot air. That's all they are. They're completely out of touch with the source of life, Christ, who puts us together in one piece, whose very breath and blood flow through us. He is the head and we are the body and we can grow up healthy in God only as he nourishes us. So then, if with Christ You've put all that puffed up and childish religion behind you. Why do you let yourselves be bullied by it? Don't touch this. Don't taste that. Don't go near this. Don't you think things that are here today and gone tomorrow, or do you think things that are here today and gone tomorrow are worth that kind of attention? Such things sound impressive if said in a deep enough voice. They even give the illusion of being pious and humble and austere, but they're just another way of showing off, making yourself look important. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, it's a lot. And like I said, this is written to them, not to us. It's written for us. Where there's a lot we don't know about the Colossian culture. Fun fact, right now, we think Colossae is buried under a farmer's field um, in Turkey, and he won't let anybody excavate it yet. Um, and so it's going to be really nice when either he, you know, croaks and passes it on to somebody who does or sells it to the state, because we might be able to find out a lot more about some of what Paul is talking about in this city, because there's some contextual things we don't know. But there are some big things we can pull out of this that, that apply directly to our circumstance today. Here we've been warned about three things and reminded to, in light of them to live like Jesus is Lord. We're warned of the empty words and traditions of our culture. We're warned of the empty words and traditions of the culture we're in. We're warned of the lies we believe about our own sin. And we're warned about religion. Let's take those one at a time. Empty words and traditions about our culture. We're warned that the slick talk and human traditions of our cultural moment are empty and enslaving. The philosophy of the day, the big words and pop philosophy and endless arguments that never amount to anything but captivate us. Captivates a great word because there's a connotation of slavery going on here. Eugene Peterson says that in, in our culture, freedom is on everyone's lips, but no one lives or acts very free. How many of us are held captive by the patterns of this world? We buy things from targeted ads we don't even need or probably even want. We habitually engage in practices which hollow out our souls and create estrangement from people we love. We brutalize our bodies with too much or too little of any number of things because we are held captive to the patterns of our culture. A handful of years ago, this guy was given a presentation in front of 200 really smart tech people in the UK. And this room was full of folks who oversee algorithms created for social media applications and interactive uh, things on websites. 
and on the internet, right? So these men and women are creating tools to drive um, attention and interaction and engagement with the apps you and I use every day. They're the folks who are sitting at computers creating little algorithms to, to increase the likelihood that we click on things. And at one point, the speaker said amongst these 200 plus people, raise your hand if you want to live in the world that you're helping create. In a room of over 200 people, not a single one raised their hand. It's like a running joke that executives in Silicon Valley don't let their children use the tools they create. And yet billions and billions and billions of dollars are spent every single year to dazzle us, to captivate us, to create dependent relationships that cost us everything and leave us empty. It's what all addictions do. One of my favorite examples of this is the swipe down to refresh feature on your phone. I think it's on all social media apps at this point. The first iteration of that was in Facebook. You would pull down to refresh the screen. And you know where that idea came from. Like what idea existed before social media did where you would pull down something to see something random happen, get a hit of dopamine, thereby creating a dependent relationship. Slot machines. Literally, that's where the idea came from to pull down and refresh on social media. And the reason why they tried it is because somebody thought, great, that's what we want, is to create dependent, addictive relationships where somebody sits there mindlessly just pulling down, investing all of their resources. And don't you know time is an incredibly important resource of yours, friends? Your attention might be the most important resource you have. And we just do this. It's hard for us to get in an self-included. It's hard to get in an elevator or wait at a red light without swiping down somewhere, refreshing the screen in some way, turning things off and on. We, we, the, these things are just full in our cultural moment right now, and we're all in on it. Social media posts, political alignments, even seemingly innocuous statements like, you don't want to miss this. All of these prey on the lies that you're not enough. It's hard for me. I, I try so hard to not put a sentence like that in our social media feed. You don't want to miss this because I know that there's cultural lies you believe and I believe that that kind of statement preys upon and it makes you feel certain things. We know you, you, that you, you won't really be satisfied. The world is promising you something it can never deliver on. Power popularity, relevance, status, none of these can deliver on what they're promising, friends. We just end up in dependent relationships, losing our agency more and more every day. And the apostle Paul says, that's not the way of Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord over all things, and when we come to him, the fullness God has for us comes together in such a way that our agency is lifted up and we're freer and freer. Rather than our agency being squandered and squished and shriveled like a raisin by the codependent relationships and addictive relationships that we're in all over the world, and we lose our freedoms, Paul says in Christ our agency is magnified and our freedom is, is lifted up. What would it look like if we lived like we have more than enough rather than living like we've never quite been let in? We've never quite had enough. Everybody else seems like they've got it. But what if we lived like Jesus is in fact Lord? What if I lived like I don't need another pair of shoes to be happy? Like I don't need to go on vacation to find meaning and joy. We, we who are in Christ have been offered the whole of the redeemed creation. 
But we often act like we don't know what we're going to do if we don't get a two-day weekend. It's wild. Paul warns them, and through them, we can still heed this warning today. The slick talk of the culture, the whole, that, that the whole world should look like Portland, Oregon. It's an empty and enslaving trap. That's number one. We're warned to watch out for the empty words and traditions of our culture which enslave us. We're also warned not to believe the lies that come from within us, from our sin and shame specifically. If you look at your life and you can see a record of sins, you can see a whole list of things that you think keep you out, or perhaps one thing in your life which indicates to you that you're too much or too far away for God to love you. The Apostle Paul emphatically says that Christ took care of those things on the cross. And living like Jesus is Lord means letting go of those things which you think define whether or not you belong to him. This is a super silly metaphor. I just, I hope it works because it's simple enough, okay? But this morning, my youngest daughter, Audrey, she came up to me and asked if I could open her water bottle. She said, Daddy, I'm not strong enough. Well, I opened it. And then I closed it like back again, not super tight, just a little bit, like, kind of like what it was. And I gave it back to her and I said, honey, I think you are strong enough. Why don't you try to do that again while I watch? And so she was like, this is what she was doing, of course. She was turning the lid to the right. And if you know anything about the wedge or screws or something like that, that's not a good idea in most instances, right? It just gets tighter, right? So that's what she was doing is just turning it to the right rather than to the left. But in her mind, she thought that her inability to open this had a claim over something about her. Daddy, I'm just not strong enough to do this. And for me, it was the reverse. Like, remember last week, if you were here, I said the verdict in Christianity, this is from Tim Keller, the verdict comes before the trial in Christianity. See, my daughter was the other way around, right? This trial came, I can't open the water bottle, therefore a verdict, I'm not strong enough to open the water bottle. I looked at her and I was like, no, listen, I know the verdict, you are strong enough. Now let's do the trial, open it up. I didn't need for her to try to know if she was strong enough. I knew that she was. I just needed her, get this, I needed her to believe me so that she would learn from me and discover what she's capable of. I just needed her to listen long enough, and that's a, that's a crapshoot in the morning, you know? You try it, it might turn into tears or something like that, I don't know. But I just, I needed her to know, I do believe you're strong enough. I'm, this is not like a test to, to, to guarantee you'll fail. Just turn it the other way instead and watch. Here, put your hand here and use the leverage of the handle over on this side. And she opened it up and the smile was on her face. And I'm like, see, now you don't ever have to tell me you're not strong enough again. There's something about you that, that was demonstrated for you. I already knew it. I didn't need to be convinced, but she did. What I knew, she discovered once she behaved differently. It's a big idea. What I knew, she discovered once she behaved a little differently. Okay, stick with me, okay? I wonder how many of us are engaged in destructive ideas and patterns of life which speak back to us false messages about who we are. And I realize I'm talking about this thing and comparing it to like a Nalgene bottle or whatever, okay? But God is telling us who we are and we struggle to believe him because we're believing messages from the world or from our own sin and shame. Friend, in Christ Jesus, your sin is removed as far as the east is from the west. If you haven't received this, receive it. And if you have received it, then pick up your head, live like it, and just like turn the lid to the left. You'll see. 
Some of the things Paul warns us about are, are the lies that we experience and the things that trap us and enslave us in our culture. He also warns us about the things we believe because of sin and shame that's already been dealt with on the cross of Christ. Lastly, Paul warns us against empty religion. We don't just need to look out for the empty words and traditions of the culture and fight the lies we believe from our sin and shame, but we also shouldn't be disqualified from anyone else dumping religious baggage on us. For our purposes tonight, it's going to be helpful to understand religion's word. Religion is humanity's attempt to get to God. Here's all the things that you got to do to make yourself right with God or make God love you. Here's what you need to do to get on the inside. Do this, don't do this. Say this, don't say this. If you say these magic words and do this magic thing, then you, then you, and, you and you really make sure you don't screw up too much like those people, then, then you're in. That's religion. That's what cultures have done throughout the history of the world because we fundamentally believe we have a separation from whatever we believe is divine to be, God to be. And we must do something because it's preposterous to think God would love us, isn't it? You don't achieve what God has given freely, Paul says. You don't improve on what he's already given in its fullness. Don't put up with anyone pressuring you in that way. Don't tolerate people who try to force that on your life. Paul says they're completely out of touch with the source of life who is Christ. Okay, practically, in other words, I don't come to worship services in order for God to love me. I don't come to worship services because I'm afraid of what's going to happen if I don't. Like, if I don't come, God's going to think more poorly of me. This is true for all kinds of spiritual disciplines and wise practices. We don't, followers of Jesus don't abstain from sex outside of marriage because we think we're going to get promised a bride or a groom or because God's going to be happier with us or something. Because we follow Jesus as Lord who has something to say about the dignity of human bodies and the power of intimacy and vulnerability and commitment and that none of you ought to be try-on and throw-away material. None of you. And if Jesus is my Lord, I'm called to honor you and dignify you in my thoughts, in my words, with my body. I'm not, I'm not, I, don't, I don't abstain from sexual immorality or something. I'm off script. I'm going to talk to me afterwards. I'll be right over here. Uh, okay. Okay. Um, I don't, I don't abstain from all that stuff because I think God's going to like me more. I hear, the, I hear the messages of this world, friend. I hear that, that the lowest common denominator that we've got right now is consent. That's a pretty important low common denominator. It's a pretty important one. But I'll tell you what I don't want. I don't want my daughters or my son, for that matter. I don't want any of them growing up and finding somebody who, who, who just says, as long as you consent, we're good. I want somebody to honor them, to cherish them, to dignify them. Like, do you see what I'm saying? Like, like there's so many things that, that are wise and that are good and that are kind. Like, like, not putting empty religion on people doesn't mean I stop praying. It means I stop thinking God only loves me when I pray. It means I stop thinking that he's gone until I say, hey God, and now he's suddenly in the room. I don't achieve what he's already won. There's no gap in the fullness of God's love and affection for you, friend. None. None, none whatsoever. When I gather and worship with other Christians because Jesus is Lord and I want to live like it, I, 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 that's why I want to live like he's Lord. He's worthy of worship. 
When we lift up bands, we go stand in front of them and lift our hands up. Whenever we think something really matters, we give it our attention and our affection. And Jesus, if you're Lord, I want to give my life to you. He's the source of life amongst his church. And when she gathers, she lifts him up and she remembers him. And so I gather for worship because God is worth it and because I need to be reminded of who he is and who I am and who you are. Because the messages I get from the world and from the religious baggage of my past and from the sin in me, I need those things to be combated with because those are all traps. I open the scriptures and read them because I want Jesus. I pray because I want God. I gather and worship because of him, not because it's some religious gatekeeping activity. If someone ever tells you that you need to do something secret in order to be in, or they start drawing lines between super Christians and normal Christians, at best, at best, Paul says, they're full of hot air. At worst, it's demonic and anti-Christ. It's just someone's way of trying to make themselves important or their tribe important. But you see, that implies that Christ hasn't made you important enough. If you've received Christ, live like it. Jesus Christ has already accomplished what you and I could never achieve. He's done it freely because he loves you. And if you're in him, you're fully in. Don't let someone else's empty religious pressure tell you something different. The Apostle Paul, right in the middle of our text tonight, says that Rome and religion and our sin are put on display on the cross of Christ. They were exposed as spiritual tyrants, he says, and marched naked through the streets. Which is an allusion to a practice that happened in the first century when an emperor would have victory over somebody. There wasn't social media, you know, emails and those kinds of things, phones and stuff. That in... When an emperor wanted everybody to know the battle that they'd won, they would take the troops that they conquered and put them in the back of a parade line and put the leader in the very, very back, like the king of the conquered country and the, or the tribe, in the very, very back, in shackles, naked. And, and the emperor of Rome would sit in the front and all of his high and mighty troops in their pomp garb would get in the front and music would play, people would cheer. And when the, when the last, when the conquered people would come through, People would be encouraged to hurl insults and throw things at them. It was a shaming, mocking thing. This is the image Paul is using here. That these things, that Rome and religion and the sin, in other words, the culture and the empty religion and the sin were put on display, exposed as tyrants, and marched naked through the streets. That's the image he's conjuring here. There's this tremendous irony, though, going on because Jesus was stripped naked and paraded through the streets and exposed openly for his shame. And do you know who conspired to kill Jesus? The scripture has interest, an interesting collection of, of characters who conspired to kill Jesus. Rome and religion and our sin. And in doing so, these things showed themselves for who they truly are. In the words of N.T. Wright, they exposed themselves, Rome, religion, and our sin, exposed themselves as usurpers. Each of them party to condemning Jesus to die, killing their master and Lord. And when all of these things are put on display in the cross of Christ, it frees us from the nasty spell we're under. Because we see these things for what they really are, not systems set up to help us and contribute to the flourishing of our lives, like Facebook or TikTok or Instagram, pornography, the way in which we use money. 
but tyrants out for blood. Jesus' work on the cross acts something like smelling salts, inviting us to wake up, to open our eyes, to see things for what they truly are. You who have received Christ, who are rooted in him, whose lives are constructed upon and in him, who've been taught by him, don't worry about all the lies of this world, the temptations of your flesh, and the pressures of empty religion. Just live the truth you've already received. If Jesus is Lord, you're free. If he's Lord, you're free. If he's Lord, you're on the inside of the inside. If Jesus is Lord, all the promises of God are yes in him. If Jesus is Lord, you are known, you are forgiven, you are loved, you are his, and you will rise from the dead. Most of you are not even asking for this stuff. We've never asked for as much as God promises to us in Jesus, ever. We need to learn to ask for more. Most of us are asking for like, a date or somebody to invite us to lunch. And Jesus is, those are good things. Those are hopefully good things. Um, Jesus is offering us all of his inheritance. That you will rise from the dead and along with all the saints, inheriting everything that's his, he will be your God and you will be his people and there will be no more sorrow, no more death, and he will wipe away every tear from every eye. And if that's true, Christian, the question is, what would it look like for us to live in light of that? To live like it? It's a question I want to leave you with today. We're not done with Colossians. We're going through it this semester. Next week we'll hear more about this from Colossians chapter 3. That's the question I want to leave you with you tonight. If Jesus is Lord and all these things are true about him, what would it look like? What's one area of your life that might look different if you live like it's actually true? Let me pray for you. Father, would you send your spirit now to draw, first of all, to awaken in any of us who struggle to believe that we are who you say we are, um, that you are who you say you are. Would you um, birth in us belief and hope? You are the God who brings something out of nothing, who brings order out of chaos and life out of death, bring hope out of despair, bring, uh, uh, bring like alive and awakeness out of lethargy. And give us a vision by the power of your spirit to see how some area of our life might look different if we begin to live like you are, in fact, who you've shown yourself to be. Free us, Lord, from the trap of the patterns of this world, from the lies that exist in our sin and our shame, and from the pressures and burdens of empty religion. Let it be that in our lives, and especially in our lives together, that Christ is enough. Receive our praise now, whether it's a prayer, whether it's a, a crying die of hope, like a cry of hope, whether it's a, an overflow of gratitude, would you receive it and redeem it? And even while we sing to you, would you pour out whatever resources we need, Lord, to follow you in this world? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.